0: You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of splatterpictures.net. What's up, everybody, Wes? Dead Air Night here with Always.
1: Typical Lydia.
0: Today's show, we're going to be doing the 1983 classic curtains.
1: And I was eight years old when this came out. So let's play this game. Uh, were you conceived, Wes? Were you born yet?
0: I was not born. No, I was on the way. You are on the way. This uh, film came out in March and I was uh, born in July so I was on the way Yeah, I, so you I, just I was... mar-
1: narrowly missed it in theaters
0: <laughs> just narrowly uh, you know if this film actually was released when it was supposed to be released and finished when it was supposed to be finished this probably would have come out in 1980 proper or uh, at least in and around there uh, but that was not going to be I'm excited for this one And uh, you want to know something that I think is really ironic. Last episode, dear listeners, if you had stuck around for our Ring episode, I talked a lot about how I'm afraid of Lydia to suggest movies that I think that she won't like. And (laughs) then the very next episode, (laughs) based on me wanting to do it, I recommend Curtains, which is... A fucking freak show. <laughs> I don't know how to say it is it. a it is a
1: fucking freak show. this film I, it has an enchanting quality. and I was all for it after, as I'd mentioned in the last episode, I'd listened to Andrew at Grumpy Andrews Horror House talk about this film and it's it's pros and its cons. and that was that was about a year ago that I watched that episode of his show. And since then, i I have watched it now twice. As I'd said, I was like eight when this movie came out. I did have a bit of a, an idea of horror at that point. Even my parents were big horror fans. We watched television in the house, so TV commercials were on. Canadian film was very important to my parents, and the the North Bay is a very artsy town, and we lived adjacent to North Bay, so there was buzz. People knew about film and talked about film. I never heard of this film until I was in my 30s probably. It was absolutely off the radar to me which is weird. Had you heard of this as a horror classic or was this something that you came to very late like I did?
0: It was the same for me as it was for you. Uh, I came to it quite late in life. I believe I would have been in my late 20s on the cusp of entering my 30s and it was one of those films that ended up on a lot of compilation videos i liked to watch youtube videos where people had cut together some montages of classic horror there was one in particular that i really really liked and it had the skating sequence from curtains in it and that is the scene isn't it that is the scene that captivates you like what is this like that Mask is terrifying looking, and what could this film possibly be? And so, you do a little research, you check the comments, you whatever, and you're like, huh, oh, curtains, hmm, I'll keep an eye out for that one. And I picked up the Blu ray just based off of that, essentially. And that's when I watched it for the first time. And uh, so, uh, you know, it wasn't one of those things where I had heard. Uh, while researching the film that this uh, was a, a, a staple of a lot of late night, midnight viewings and stuff like that. I was just not aware whatsoever.
1: I'm surprised I'd never stumbled upon it on TV like that if it were. And there's a lot of that sort of stuff going on, especially in MCTV, mid Canada television that aired in my area before cable So that's where I saw the bulk of these sorts of films. And often when it comes to these sorts of films, if I don't remember the film, I usually remember the trailer because of having the television on as a kid. And I really loved movie trailers because they would often scare me (laughs) and they would stick in my mind. This one, I watched the trailer this morning, the original trailer. Nope, don't remember it. Uh, And I'm still kind of surprised about that. The trailer is pretty fantastic, actually. This is supposed to be a true nightmare, Wes. <laughs> uh,
0: well, the only nightmare I think would be the production of this film, for the people working on it. Um, one of the interesting aspects about this film, the one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about it, was it's something of a minor miracle that this film even got released. And that is... The explanation about when you're watching this film and you feel like you're watching two different movies. It's not totally obvious upon first viewings. I don't know how you feel about it, but if I were to talk about my first time ever watching this film, I didn't know what the fuck was going on. And the, the third act reveal about what was going on just left me scratching my head. Thinking I'd missed something. And thankfully, I had the Blu ray so I could go into the making of documentary of this film. And when I did that, it just washed over me with a realization like, oh, that's why this movie is the way that it is
1: which makes a lot of sense when you when you know or read the wikipedia or watch some of the other commentaries that you can get on this film as to why it is such a mess especially near the end although it is made fairly competently there are a few sequences that are hard boiled horror and it does have some some actresses from horror it has like competency behind it It has high production value to a certain extent for its time it reminds me quite a bit of i was watching uh don't open till christmas on the joe bob briggs thing oh that's what we did for christmas this year we watched the joe bob briggs thing and luckily because it was a, a christmas horror story which we really like another canadian film and it was fun to see them talk about that but that film, Don't Open Till Christmas, had the same sort of production problem with even Edmund Purdum walking off halfway through filming. So they had to sort of stitch it together. I will say with Don't Open Till Christmas, not as good of a movie as Curtains, but they did a better job of fixing the storyline. And it has the same sort of head scratching ending in a way, but they they at least find a thread somewhere at the beginning of that tapestry and pull it through to the end of the film. We're here. <laughs> no, they don't. They, they do not pull that off.
0: I'm glad you opened, uh, you uh, mentioned Don't Open Till Christmas. Um, that is, uh, for listeners, a film that I've considered uh, bringing to the table for Christmas episodes of, of the show for a little while. My problem with it is the fact that it's not very interesting. Like, it's it's kind of a tough sit. You know, I, I, maybe the Joe Bob Briggs parts would make it more entertaining because it cuts it in and stuff like that, but I find that movie a bit of a slog. This film has its pedigree in the great white north, and, and we've covered films, Canadian tax shelter films before, uh, Prom Night and My Bloody Valentine and Black Christmas. Films that you could absolutely tell where they were filmed. This film was filmed in Ontario, and you could very much tell that it was filmed in Ontario. There's something about, even at the beginning of the film, there's no snow, and it becomes a snowy film after the, I'd say like, it's fairly early. By the time they get to the house, it's snowy, but when everyone's going to the house, it's not snowy. And that sort of wet woods look very much reminds me of late November, early December in Ontario. And the, the the producer of this film Is Peter Simpson And I don't know if I mentioned that previously But he was the guy that did Prom Night And he wanted to do a slasher film That was more geared towards adults And so he thought what he would do Is he would tell a story That just didn't really focus on young people Although it's kind of hard to determine How old some of these uh, actors are supposed to be I, I get the feeling that some of them are supposed to be, like, ingenues, like, very new to the world of Hollywood and and stuff like that. It hinges around a lot of sort of veteran actors who are supposed to be the old hands of Hollywood. And I I, I think that's where, like, the adult component is supposed to be.
1: And the uh, sexy rape scene also is very adult, as opposed to... A romp in the hay, or a sleepaway camp uh, experimentation with sexuality, that opens up with quite the the adult scene, and I mean there is some some nudity here and there, hot tub related nudity, the casting hot tub as they put it, which is hilarious <laughs> to me, which is not at all, but they it very early on we get a sort of rape fantasy played out between a couple, so it's all consensual, it's all good, but it's just like whoa. <laughs> You really went for it. You really went for it that early in the film. But um, yeah, the old washed up actress is maybe 32. <laughs> and the other old <laughs> uh, hand, as you put it, who is like um, a very in demand actress who doesn't even read scripts till she has an offer. And she has a very high powered agent and all of those things and assistance. And she doesn't take any bullshit. She's probably 32. <laughs> and all the younger girls are maybe 29. I don't know. They all look like around the same age.
0: They, they really, really do. Before we get into it too deeply, Lids, what is this fucking movie even about anyways? This is the hardest one I'm ever going to give you.
1: This is the hardest one. And I really ought to jot these ideas of mine down beforehand shouldn't i instead of pulling them directly out of my ass it's it's plainly about the doll how the doll is on the cover the doll is featured in the corner of the room after the sexy rape i mean i can't even put question marks in my voice enough to emphasize that the doll is present in dream sequences the doll is present and the highlight skating sequence, the doll is present in nightmarish scenes. Is it about the doll? No, Wes, it's not about the doll at all. It's not about the doll. And I'm very disappointed.
0: <laughs> uh, the, the doll is also featured on the, the Blu-ray menu screen, in case you're curious.
1: Jesus Christ. The doll's in the trailer, too, very much. It's featured very heavily in the trailer. Is this film about the doll? No, it is not. It is not about the doll.
0: There's this aspect of the film that every time the doll showed up, I just kept thinking to myself, did someone let Charles Band wander onto the fucking set with a little doll and say, (laughs) this is the scary part, gotta have a little dolly in it. Uh, I will say that that doll is fucking terrifying with its weird half-crying face. Yeah, I don't know why anyone would want a doll that looks like that, but... They do.
1: I was studying the doll when I rewatched the film and thinking like did they modify the face of the doll to have it look more frowny? Cuz I yeah, I can't envision a doll that was that was sad looking like that, but I, dolls come in all flavors, much like these actresses. There's many types of dolls out there.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. The, the the actresses are kind of hard to tell apart. Uh, so much so that Samantha, the the uh, the the oldest and most accomplished actress, the the Meryl Streep of this film, she'll say to this table of women that they all look alike to her. This opening sequence is fucking baffling. You are opening up to Samantha and. Jonathan Stryker, by the way, the film's gonna say that it's directed by that person. Don't get confused, it's because the actual director of those sequences hated the film so much that he did a Alan Smithy and he took his name off yep. the film and they just uh put the uh the director or the, the fake character's name, who was also a director, onto the film.
1: Which I give them points for that because an Alan Smithy. Pulling an Alan Smithy is not very creative to do what they've done here and say it's directed by Jonathan Stryker. They get points of, you know, putting us into that dreamland.
0: They're doing this scene together. And then the next thing you know, Samantha's being committed to an asylum. Now, you get the sense at the very beginning that she is genuinely unwell, tries to kill Stryker. So she gets committed. You find out in the same scene that she's putting him on. This is a one flew over the cuckoo's nest, Lydia. She's not really crazy. She is going to do some method acting. She is going to learn what it's like to be this character that she is to play in Jonathan Stryker's newest film. Was it Audra?
1: Yeah, Audra.
0: And I guess Audra either... Is in a mental institution During the, the the film Or at least part of the film she is So When she lives there And then she kind of realizes Huh Being committed to an asylum Kind of sucks And then she seems to be mad at Jonathan For doing it But it seems to be her idea Or his idea And then Lids He doesn't even use her for the part Because he's holding auditions for the role that she was to play with a bunch of new girls. Six, in fact. One of them's blonde, but don't get attached to her.
1: No, yeah, don't get attached to the the one, the only one that stands out amongst all these Brooke Shields lookalikes. And that's the only actress I can think of that is contemporary to the time that they would have all been sort of emulating with the brunette look, right? They're not Hitchcock blondes. The only Hitchcock blonde doesn't stick around. But... Is it that he planned this all along? Is he really that conniving? Or is it because she begins to exhibit traits of insanity or uh, schizophrenia in more of a, a comatose sort of state and she's slipping into these fugue states? Are they drugging her? Or have they committed some sort of electric shock therapy on her? It's a very strange idea of an asylum at the time too because a lot of the people that she's in there with just laugh and clap they don't talk they tickle they giggle they scream but they don't like talk or have personalities so it's just a very strange idea of like this titicut follies version of what an asylum is so it doesn't it doesn't sell me on the idea that she's been made crazy by committing herself here because it is a very poorly represented hospital, right? Very poorly represented. Uh, so unfortunately, it doesn't do that work for me to convince me that she's gone insane, but that's what it is. So has she gone insane? And that's why he's recasting it. They don't really make it his motivation clear.
0: His motivation, Jonathan Stryker's motivation, seems to be like horny, old-school director he is going to bring all these women together to have them essentially audition, but he is—he is presenting himself as this man who, like an an insane auteur director, he looks like Orson Welles. He acts, uh, what I hear was what, how Harvey Weinstein acted, just like and and all of his method acting techniques it's all involving sex and seduction and like you guys should make out with each other you know you pretend you're a man and then you try to seduce her and and you should too should make out like grab her tit acting like that's what this guy is like throughout the entire film (laughs) he's a fucking scumbag and it just seemed so obvious that you know, he's just trying to like see boobies and get laid. And 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 he's going to do it all under the auspices of... I'm a big-time director and and you're all actors... But you don't know anything about acting. I know everything about acting. And if you want to be in my movie, and you do... You are going to do all this weird sex stuff. And then you could try to sleep with me. But I'm going to like sleep with this person and then discard them. And meanwhile, all of these women know... That there's this other actress, Samantha, who wasn't invited to this place at all, but shows up and she makes no bones about the fact that like she was originally supposed to be part of this role. And, and he just and he doesn't even give a real explanation. He was like, I thought you were Audrey, but you're not. That's all he says. Like,
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, which is great. And all the other girls seem to think like, oh, well, why, why don't they just give the role to her? She's the natural choice for this. She's his protege slash lover maybe wife, whatever. And they they have seen her in films, so they know that she's a phenomenal actress. And they they even voice, like, well, I guess that's who is playing Audra. Why are we even here?
0: When you're leading up to the house, you have this suicide squad-like introduction to all of the actresses who are going to be showing up. And you kind of get a sense of what their thing is. And trying to get a sense of what their personalities could be. But it's really, really hard to suss out who is who. Um, Even upon multiple viewings of this film, I have a hard time, and I know you did too, just keeping these women
1: straight. It's the Brooke Shields problem to a certain extent. Yes, they're all brunettes. Yes, they're all of a certain style they all have sort of this chic glam 80s look to them with a professional polish because they're trying this is their interview right this is their big audition they're all trying to look their best so they all look kind of the same and if it's not for their hobbies or aspirations or other jobs we wouldn't be able to tell them apart very well I had to drop a cheat sheet so that I could keep their names straight because on top of all that they look alike They're all dressing very similarly. They're looking a lot like Brooke Shields and their skills only shine in certain scenes with them. And those scenes aren't coupled with people using their names as often as they ought to. Now, normally I don't resort to the Bechdel test, but this does pass it. They do speak to each other. They all have names. They don't only speak about men. They have aspirations and jobs So it does pass the basic test, but it it fails us in that they don't make a point of using their names in conversation. And when they do, it's only very casual conversation. So we don't have many scenes where their names are used with memorable intent. So it tends to just kind of fall off, unfortunately, and add to us confusing them. Now, they do have differences, of course. Like There is some apparent age differences. One of them has short hair, one has mid-length hair, one has very long hair, one has lighter brunette hair that's wavy, one has (laughs) mid-length hair that's curly. They're all very different, Wes.
0: (laughs) Can I tell you that there? I am not fucking joking, where during that dinner sequence, everyone is almost wearing the exact same fucking shirt, like one of them has like... A light purple sweater another person has a dark purple sweater this person has like ish eggshell sweater like it's it's
1: wild and their makeup is all very the same they have a a coral red lipstick which was very popular at the time and bluish eyeshadow with very light tight lined black eyeliner period that is oh and blush they wear blush Sometimes a little too much, sometimes not quite enough, but it's they all visibly obviously have the exact same tone of blush on. Okay, this makeup department problems, perhaps. It's also the style of the time, so it tracks, but it helps make them all look the same.
0: It's definitely not going to help when some actresses come back for later scenes, and it's been literally years since they last okay. were in this role, and you could definitely tell that... They're looking a little different than they used to. With different hair and, and and such. I want to talk about the stuff in this film that works. Because I could rag on this film for a bunch of like things that don't work. Moments in the film in which I was watching in which I feel as though things were genuinely good. Uh, the biggest scene, the most famous scene, I'll get to in a second. But the first sequence I want to talk about... Is this dream sequence that they have before this first victim our Hitchcock blonde after she has her kinky sex with her boyfriend she has this dream sequence with this doll the doll is in the middle of the, the road it's pouring rain it's gray it's um, miserable looking and she goes to this um, doll and the doll will eventually grab her wrist and not let go. She'll see that someone has gotten to the vehicle and they'll try to drive into her and kill her. It's a great scene. It's effective. It's shot well. I really like it. However, what is this fucking sequence? What like? It seems like from a completely different movie altogether. It seems like it's inserted from something else.
1: Which is good in a way. It's a dream sequence and it's good to have it sort of feel otherworldly like that or even just like it's directed by someone else and shot with a different camera which they very well could have done. And it fits very well with what's to come in that she doesn't quite make it to this mansion for her audition at all. And her death is mirrored to a certain extent by her kinky sex with her boyfriend which happened just before this dream sequence. It is A good setup, I think, for the doll. (laughs) It's a good setup (laughs) for the doll being intrinsic to the story, which it is fucking not. Which, you know, yes, it is a very cool dream sequence. I like it quite a lot. It features quite heavily in the trailer, actually. And that's good because it sets us up for, you know, something bizarre is going to go on. We have to check our expectations at the door here with this. We can't get too attached to these people maybe this is also what feeds our forgettableness when it comes to these characters because one that stands out that we're introduced to that stands out quite vibrantly not only because of different hair color but because of her uh, boyfriend and her adult fun time is quite striking and she has this interaction with a doll and quite vivid dreams psychic dreams if you will and then what and then she gets killed
0: the killer's gonna take that doll and then, at least for a a little bit, that doll will become the harbinger of doom. Uh, They don't stick with that theme. It would have been interesting if the doll showed up every time that there was a kill, but it doesn't, only for the first two. And you get this sense, oh, they're doing something with this doll. They're not. It's just, I guess they had an idea and then they just decided to, well, the idea's over, I suppose. The most famous scene in this film, Lydia, I think we can all agree, is the ice skating scene. Not only is it beautifully shot, it's the daytime, there's beautiful white crisp snow, Christy is with a pink scarf and a white hat, it's just very vibrant and it pops, and if you're the type of person who likes horror movies, that have that wintry aesthetic. This is a great shot and sequence that has a very beautiful wintry aesthetic to it. And so much of this film is in slow motion and the uncanny valley of this old crone mask that they use throughout the entire film. This is the one sequence where I'm not making fun of it at all. I think the scene is great and this is one of those sequences where i see a really effective cool slasher movie here it's almost heartbreaking that nothing else really gets the scene there's this the the final chase sequence is very good as well but the thing that i think that this sequence has that no other sequence in this film has is This seems wholly original to this film, whereas every other sequence in this film, I've seen it somewhere before.
1: Yeah, in in various guises, absolutely. And this one, sure, we've seen winter horror, we've seen outside scenes, we've seen skating-related scenes, but nothing quite like this. And nothing that really mirrors the sort of pacing that we get with a killer I like this scene a lot because it, it does a lot of actual heavy work. It establishes the area. It establishes a red herring in the houseman or whatever he is, who is also out in the woods at this time gathering firewood or whatever it is he's doing. So we know he's out there. Yes. It establishes that no matter how big or insular or isolated it seems to be. There are many areas on the grounds of this that are far enough away from the house that no one can hear you scream, to use a cliche, and that these girls are independent enough to go off into these areas. So it, it does a lot of that work for us behind the scenes and psychologically and plot-wise with a, with a small red herring. It also sets us up pre- previously that knowing that the killer has malice aforethought in that they're sharpening their scythe and their skates. They, they have planned this very much. It's not a crazed maniac so much out there as it is somebody with a plan. Uh, and we can draw, of course, the parallel between the first kill and this kill quite well, too, even though they are so very, very different. And it's gorgeous. The pacing of this is gorgeous. We get full frontal killer, too. This is not a black glove killer sort of thing. Even though it has giallo feels near the end of this film, at this point, no. We get glimpses of the killer's skates, the killer's sight, the killer's face wearing this hideous mask. Then it gets closer and we get to see even more of it. We get to spend a lot of time looking at this hideous hag mask that is chasing the girl down. We get real screams, really, really great screams from the character of Christy played by Leslie Donaldson. And this is the sort of scream queen that we want to see. Real terrified screams. Not just one where the shadow's looming over a girl, but a chase sequence. And it doesn't end there. You would expect that she just gets a scythe through the neck at this point. But no, she gets to be chased through the woods. And who doesn't like a good chase scene? This is so much more different than, of course, the stalking killer that we're used to in something like a Friday the 13th through the forest where the killer slowly walking behind them and girls screaming through the the forest at night. It's brightly lit. It's white snow. We can feel the cold. She's underdressed because she was ice skating and we know that there are two people out there in the forest with her. So very terrifying, very tense scene, a tension that isn't matched anywhere else in the film. I don't think.
0: I agree. Uh, and, and that's how come this sequence is easily the best of the film and it it really sets you up for okay you know all right it was a little slow and weird to get going but if every other sequence is this beautiful and drawn out and and establishes tension and again you know your mask is effective and your killer is creepy when you have the audacity to shoot them in broad daylight without a cloud in the sky, because it looks creepy all by itself. This mask, this old crone's mask with this wild red hair, it is the best thing that this killer has going for them. I like their their scythe. That's also very cool, but um, you know, there's there's better slasher movies in which a character uses a scythe like behind the mask and stuff like that.
1: I guess this is technically a sickle.
0: It's a sickle, you're right, a sickle. So very cool. Immediately, we're back to the days of our lives. You're just watching people clutching their pearls, and there's weird sequences that vaguely remind me of Suspiria or some kind of other Jalo, like you were saying, and you, you get this weird sense from this director, Jonathan Stryker, that he already knows who is going to be this character that he wants to be in this movie, and the rest of the girls are for, what, sex? I don't get it. So, so much of me was so curious about, like, how much of the, these weird acting exercises that this director is doing, how much of this is based off of experience? Who who did the writers of this film know that was like this because we've heard stories now that you know 20 30 40 50 years later you know we have a lot more information about the hollywood process especially from back in the day and it's cringy it's it's bad and a lot of actors push back against method acting and people who are sort of notorious method actors now are considered kind of real assholes that you're just being a dick, pretending you're this character on the set, because it's always like, method acting or actors always seem to be when they're playing douchebags. It's never like, yeah, I'm a real method actor. I play a lot of nice guys, so I'm just like a nice guy on the set. It's always like, this person wouldn't talk to anybody in the set, wouldn't fucking listen to you unless you called them by their character name. Like, they made everything really tense. They were being a really abusive asshole, and they just kept saying, well, that's my character. So I just find it interesting that, we're watching this sequence and the Jonathan Stryker, he's talking so vaguely about passions and acting and he just like, make me believe this and ble- I, where's your truth and and it's just bullshit. It's all just word salad and it's so cringy to listen to. And, and also the fact that you have certain characters that are some of the old, like Brooke and Samantha, the older actresses who've been around the block a little bit who are kind of calling this guy on his bullshit. and But yet they're all still wanting this part. And I was like, this better be the greatest fucking movie role in the history of cinema to put up with this asshole.
1: Agreed. And I don't even really know where a Canadian production would have gotten this idea of how people behave in Hollywood because it is sort of removed from all that. And that's probably where... It's transparency lies. And we can see right through this striker character because he's a really bad caricature mm-hmm. of very bad caricatures in a way. So that's probably why it doesn't sit right either. And it wouldn't sit right even if it was accurate because this person would be a douchebag. This person would be a bully. No matter what. And it is partially sex. Like I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he really isn't sold on the girl he has in mind. Maybe he really does want to give these other girls a chance. Maybe he just trips and falls into bed with them because he's so sexy. (laughs) Like he's not even a Barney Rubble either. Like, I don't even know. He's sort of like, he's like an, an older patriarch from uh, soap opera. Definitely. It's definitely got soap opera vibes.
0: Yes. The whole time, particularly when you would just have characters talking around their real issues like you have so many instances Samantha comes into a scene and then they're talking around the truth of the that but like they're trying they're openly arguing but surreptitiously in a weird way and so much of that is soap opera dialogue where it's essentially you're this wonderful actor and it's like yes just not the right actor and it's just and, and like, meanwhile, you have, like, six other characters that are just, like, sitting here listening to this weird conversation where it's like, would you guys go and have a private conversation? Like, what the fuck are you talking about? There is some Canadian horror alum in this film that I wanted to talk a little bit about because first time I ever saw this film and I saw her face, I just kept looking at her. as like, where do I know this face from? Where do I? Who is this? Woman, who is this? And then when you realize who it is and you say, oh, that's one of the most famous faces in horror because it's in all the posters, all the promotional shots, everything that you think about this movie, Black Christmas, all you have to do is imagine that face with a plastic bag over its head because it's Lynn Griffin. Lynn Griffin plays the comedian, the character of Patty, delivering all of her lines like she's Groucho Marx. It, she is the one that exudes a lot more personality than everybody else. I think that's the idea, is, is she's the comedian. Everything from the dinner sequence to a little after-hours thing where she's playing with stuffed animals. When you uh, There's actually, in that sequence in particular, uh, Christy comes in and, and says a few words, and you realize, oh, that's how she knew uh, where Christy was going to be. Uh, so there is there is little, like, dialogue hints and, and stuff like that to who the killer might be. There's a sequence midway through the film in which Patty is doing some kind of audition for Stryker, and you could tell that she's not what he's looking for. And then she raises this question about, why am I even here? And me as the audience, I'm sitting here, yeah. Why is she here? She's never done a dramatic role. This is clearly a role that is supposed to be super dramatic. And she wants to be an actress. But why would he care? Is she is, is did he invite her there because she was so desperate to be an actress that he could sense that? Because he just like circles around her like a shark while she's doing the audition with this sti- like he like he got a whiff of some stinky cheese and feet or something like that. I was like, like, you invited her here. Why do you hate her so much?
1: He's probably pissed off because she's not seducible. (sighs) Fuck. I don't know if it is, if that really was his plan. It seems to be. But maybe he's turned off by her sexually. And, you know, maybe he had thought, like, maybe, yeah, sure, she's a comedian. And, yeah, she's a fledgling. But maybe she'll sleep with me and it'll turn out that she's the kind of crazy I need. I mean, I, I really do enjoy her misfit nature. The musician is also a bit of a misfit nature. She's not as polished as the other girls either. And I had to hmm. use my cheat sheet. Her name was Tara. Her character. Tara, was Tara, yeah. And she's not as polished as the other girls either, but fits in a little better as far as the role and the look where, when I was referring to the light burn light brunette, Brunette out of all of them with the longest hair that is wavy, not curly, and that's Patty. She doesn't really even fit the look either. So there's nothing about her that fits here. And I I like the the interplay with the girls and the way that some of them trying to get along, some try to get along with Stryker, some of them really are oil and water, and oil and water with him. And she's specifically a bit of a firecracker, especially with him. Meanwhile, our red herring hops on his snow machine and takes off into the forest, never to be be seen again. So (laughs) it doesn't help that we've got these inklings about the girls not getting along and all of them sort of hating Stryker as it is. And we also have, of course, Samantha, who hates everyone in the fucking building, and our red herring, whose name I forget entirely, jumps on his... uh, Oh, his name's Matthew. Jumps on his skidoo and, and takes off
0: that character is the most baffling because it's 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 literally like that dinner scene i'm sorry to keep harvey back to this dinner sequence but this really is a set piece where they introduce all of the main characters and what their interplay is going to be so it's a critical scene and Stryker is just like oh by the way this is matthew and he like lurches in like a crab on hot sand, and just slinks down into his fucking chair. No dialogue, and you're like, who is this guy? And I can tell you, he's a dude that fucks because he's in the hot tub later with one of the girls. And you're, and but you're just like, but who is the, the groundskeeper? Why is she sleeping with him? There's no indication that she has any idea who she, who he is. And that was um, Tara, I believe that was like sleeping with him or or whatever. So it's fucking baffling. There's so many sequences that, that seem out of sequence. The, the scene with Christy, when she goes into a room with Stryker and then Stryker leaves and she's disheveled and in bed and crying. And I'm like, did he assault her? And when I did some research, the only way that they describe the scene is like after Stryker rejects her. I'm like, doesn't look like he rejected her. She was naked. So why is she crying? And then all of a sudden, Stryker's just sleeping with Brooke. <laughs> it's like, what the
1: I like fuck? the sleeping with Brooke thing. I, I, I hesitate to say I like it, but I like what it does for us. We're, like our hatred for Stryker has been building since the beginning. He commits his girlfriend, treats her like garbage, treats these girls like garbage, and is a is a crappy director at the, from the get go. Doesn't know how to handle an actress. It seems is trying to bang them all brooke finds christie's head in her toilet her filthy toilet i will also add oh my god it's so gross yeah it is and the the scene is pretty interesting in how she reacts and i really dislike this idea of a hysterical woman because that is what they paint her as all of a sudden she goes from very collected very calm very poised professional woman to this bluthering idiot that can't even string words together and say what is wrong. She just keeps pointing at the bathroom and saying, in there, in there, kind of thing. She doesn't say, Christy's head is in my toilet, which is what you need to say in a scene like this. But she <laughs> is reduced to hysterical woman. And it's an inch away from him slapping her and saying, get yourself together, woman. He Shaking screams her at shoulders. her, he tugs her, he shoves her. Yeah, basically, he bullies her and physically assaults her in a time of distraught need and it's just it's just so disgusting really it's a disgusting scene and then add disgust to actual abject disgust where they open the toilet and there's no head in there of course and it's filthy (laughs) it's so filthy obviously the groundskeeper has taken off on his skidoo because no one has cleaned that toilet for like 12 years it's disgusting and how does he console her bangs her That'll fucking straighten her out. That'll calm her down.
0: <laughs> you just need some vitamin D, my dear.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Which he has in abundance in his room.
0: I, I just... The the way he sort of preens around the mansion bothers me. With his, like like, leather jacket and his perfect posture. And, like, he's, like, this super serious director... And I was like dude you just are like a horn dog you're an old gross horn dog you just want to get laid and bang all these like fucking 20 year olds but despite all of that despite all of that we are going to get a sequence lids that seems very strange we are going to uh cut to all the girls um and we are going to uh interject with like Lorraine and I kind of I get this sense that they didn't know what they were doing with a lot of the characters because they seem to be really hinging on the fact, like, this is the one that dances. This is the one that skates. So you have Lorraine doing her interpretive dance by herself, warming up, practicing. And she's killed so abruptly. And I'm wondering why, in of all the kills that you do, where there's this one has the least lead-up the least tension. It just seems to be like getting rid of another person in the house. And then almost immediately afterwards, you just have Brooke and Stryker sort of laughing and carrying on. And then all of a sudden, like it's a daytime soap opera, a a gun from the darkness is pointed and they both get shot and they fall out of a window. And that's
1: kind of it. That's kind of it. I know it is way, way too abrupt, especially when you could have quite a bit of fun with the dancer. As far as physical beauty goes, facial, physical beauty in that face that launched a thousand ships, the dancer is the most classically beautiful of all of these women. And you would think that there will be something, you know, deep seated psychologically or philosophically. go along with her death and there really isn't um lorraine is the name of the dancer's character i had to refer to my cheat sheet yet again for that but (laughs) it's it it almost smacks of an actress walking off set (laughs) so they had to like wrap up her kill real quick and deal with her (laughs) body discovery later on um or something because it's it is so abrupt and it's sort of unfortunate because we've had some nice time in between kills And some like head-in-the-toilet action. And we know the killer is around. And then it's sort of like they're like, yeah, okay, you know I'm around. I might as well give up the ghost and just kill a whole bunch of people all of a sudden back-to-back. It's unfortunate. Because I was looking forward to something like the uh, glass unicorn kill in Black Christmas. Something that's long and visual. Something to rival the ice skating scene. I wanted something like the waterbed stabbing scene in pieces. Something a little more artistic. But, no, we don't really get that, do we?
0: We don't, and that's a good point about the glass unicorn kill in black Christmas. I think that what when you were saying that it dawned on me that the ice skating sequence simply just happens too early in the film. It, for for mm-hmm. something so opulent and stretched out, it makes sense from the perspective of having to um, establish a kill during the calm. None of these women know anything's wrong, so it would be weird to have, for example, if a bunch of people were going missing and then a girl is just saying, ah, you know what, I'm going to go ice skate. That would be a little strange. But I suppose there would be a different way to do that. If you're going to make that sequence so stretched out, opulent, beautiful, lots of tension, save that for later in the film as well to keep it going or at least make it very action oriented to kind of keep the momentum up once you've started building it because once you've shot Stryker and Brooke, it should be a non-stop roller coaster of death and destruction and chasing and they get with that with our i guess final girl it's hard to
1: say Tara. Tara, yeah, who we haven't spent much time with other than her drive up there to the mansion. That's the most time we've really spent getting to know her. And you wouldn't be alone if you forgot her name and what she did (laughs) during all of this. She just happens to be the last brunette left alive.
0: The craziest thing about this sequence is once you're watching this film and it starts, you say, okay, I've seen a lot of slasher movies in my day. Here is the final girl chase sequence. And so you see, even though people had managed... Like, Christy had managed to fight off the killer during her ice skating scene, Tara manages to fight off this character a few times. And you're going through these hanging mannequins and puppets, and there's all this weird... The whole thing reminds me of Tourist Trap. But the... She discovers one body, Lorraine, to to confirm that that character is dead at the very least. And then, otherwise, when you have Tara moving through the sequences, the hallways, these opulent sets, it's beautiful. And then, again, when I'm watching this, I think, okay, this is actually pretty good. Uh, You've had a lot of ramping up, a lot of action, a lot of death. Here's Tara... Uh, we'll do a killer reveal soon, I'm sure. And then, out of nowhere, and I'm curious to what your opinion on this was, as when you watched it for the first time, Tara is pulled in and murdered. And then you sort of sit back in your chair and you go, huh, thought that was supposed to be our final girl. What's the twist? Uh, what did you think of it?
1: I enjoyed it. I had um at this point knowing how much time is left in the film also helps. If there would be 5 minutes left in the film, then I would have sat more comfortably with this big final chase scene. But there are other girls left alive and we're not near the end time-wise. So it's just sort of confusing that is this our glass unicorn? I think that's what I'm just going to call them from now on. Is this our <laughs> glass unicorn? Uh, is is that what this is supposed to be? Because it's a little bit too confusing for that, in that we're showing that our killer is weakness. We we don't get a killer reveal. We get some body reveals, but we, this is mostly just for the um, maniac-esque, Argento-like, confusion, dreamland, nothing is as it seems, brick walls behind doors, dummy cars that can't can't start like is is it just supposed to do that for us really is it a fitting end for a musician no and i was i was quite disappointed by the scene because it seems to be a lot of noise for no reason if they're going to kill off the ballet dancer and just shoot people randomly two in one go they might as well have just offed her super quick too and get to the meat of the story because by this point we're, we're we're pretty much convinced that this is Samantha doing all of this, right? I don't know. Were you convinced of that? I know I was.
0: Um, I don't really remember who I thought I thought the killer was. I think um, I'm always I try not to figure things out. I try to to wait and for the movie to tell me what is going to happen. Sometimes I figure things out. Sometimes I'm way off. But I I definitely was thinking that this was somehow a plot that I couldn't quite figure out. I was convinced that somehow Stryker and Brooke weren't really dead. It struck me oh. a little bit like April Fools. like it struck me a little yeah. bit as as though, oh, you think these characters are dead, but in actuality they're not or this is being orchestrated as some larger scheme. Or that Stryker, I was so I was so convinced that Stryker was somehow in on these murders. That's what I was convinced. Maybe it's because he's just a scummy dude and I didn't like him. But mm-hmm. I, I just, everything there seemed so strange. It was strange that he called everybody there. It was strange that he seemed to have an idea in his head who he wanted this character to be. And also, I'm contending with this entire 10-15 minute opening sequence in this insane asylum and you're asking yourself, what's the point of all this? Unless this is going to pay off somehow. And it doesn't even pay off. Because we'll get into the the, the spoiler aspect of it. You, this is a double killer, Hamana, this is a double killer version of a slasher film in which, so like To All A Good Night or Scream You have two killers, and the one random killer, or the one random kill throughout this film with a gun, which none of the other kills were done by a gun, was Samantha. She shot Stryker and Brooke, and then she is in a scene with Patty, our comedian, and they're having this, again, coy conversation in the kitchen in which... You don't know, and they don't even know, that both of them are killers, but they were killing different people for different reasons and somehow never figured out that other people were being murdered in the fucking mansion. And that is the most buckwild fucking shit I've ever seen in any fucking slasher movie. Every time that there's two killers, at the very least, at the fucking very least, both of the killers are aware that killers are happening, but Samantha has no idea that everyone else is fucking dead. She doesn't think for a second that anyone has been killed except for Stryker and Brooke. So, all of these people are systematically going missing. You have come there with murderous intent. You don't notice that anyone else is going missing. You only care the fact that you're there to kill Stryker and you're there to kill Brooke. Or maybe Brooke more so because she just happened to be in the room. But also, she brags about not caring about getting arrested. She wants it. She's like, I'm not going anywhere. Don't worry, I won't hurt your friends. And then, Patty is just like, it's only me. I'm the only one left. And she's like, what? And she's just like, why? And before Samantha can even learn why she's getting killed, she just gets killed. It's crazy.
1: Absolutely random. And it's hilarious in that I'm the only one left alive and the other killer doesn't even realize. I think that that's great. And it shows just how selfish and wound up in themselves people can become and it is just a tale of selfishness and the doll because it's all about the doll who we haven't (laughs) seen for quite some time but yeah it is it sounds like soap opera writing very much so but in a soap opera we would get another year or 25 years of storyline attached to this scene but this is like the end of the movie basically where it's all wrapped up and we get that quasi-reveal that Patty has orchestrated all of the other more opulent murders, not the quick shoot, two with one blow. I'm pretty sure that Samantha went there with murderous intent to a certain degree. She could have caught him in a room with anybody at any time. And it's just a recreation of that scene that they were doing as a warm-up or whatever they were doing at the beginning of the film where she talks about, you think I won't do it, Uh, catching a man in bed with another woman you don't know much about women do you and she has a gun in that very 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 first scene when we first are introduced to samantha and Stryker entirely so it is just a kind of a recreation of all that so she has already stated that she would have no qualms about shooting a dude due to jealousy she's only there due to jealousy she could have committed all the other murders if, you know, let's say the cops need to pin this on somebody and Patty tells a good lie, um, they could pin it all on her because her jealousy and rage definitely commingled to a double homicide. But I don't know if she went there with murderous intent 100%. It just happened that way, right? But to not even notice, yeah, that other people are going missing, crazy.
0: <laughs> well, you, you actually um, talked me into liking the, the scene a little bit uh, more than I did uh, because I was like, you know what, you're right. You know that that was a mirror of that warm up scene, and and I suppose if you're a-, a studious person, paying attention to the writing and the s- the-, the script in general, uh, you might be able to pick that up. So I don't know. I'm warming up to it a little bit. You've convinced me a bit.
1: They obfuscate and confuse us, though, with these all-samey-looking the actresses not using their names in memorable ways so we can really delineate who's who and actually care about who's who. They throw in this doll that definitely confuses the fucking shit out of us. We're expecting to see the doll in the, <laughs> in the kitchen, too, right? Like, I, I, don't, I was. We did miss a scene that I think does nothing but fan service, in a way. Uh, and they're looking in their in their crystal ball to see where their fans would sit. But there is a scene with Stryker where he's embarrassing Samantha entirely in front of everybody by forcing her to act with the hag mask on. Because the yes. hag mask just makes an appearance in the middle of their rehearsals. Yes. What the fucking hell? They They kind of ruin the killer for us in a way there, but they also amp up the mask, which... We, we don't see again after the kitchen scene, of course, but like, so the mask was just like in a prop box all this time and the killer could grab it willy nilly because it is used for a kill and then ends up in the rehearsal room where everyone sees it and Stryker handles it and puts it on Samantha. And then this mask is used again for killing.
0: That's where I thought Stryker was going to be in on it. Thanks for bringing that up because... I was convinced that it was more of Stryker essentially using Samantha as, like, an attack dog. If that makes sense, like, put on the mask and convince me that you're Audra and convince me of your passion. And And the only reason why these other ingenues have shown up to to for this audition was to be set up like lambs to the slaughter to make Samantha, like, the perfect character because, again, if you're to believe that this character is unhinged, it's possible to believe that the character that she's going to play had killed people or is a killer or, or something like that. So you could not you have made the film about that, and it would be really strong stuff. It just needed a little something to tie it all together. And, I, and just having, like, Stryker, a boob that just gets killed... And doesn't even really understand that or why he's getting killed. And then dies not even knowing that everyone else in the mansion was getting killed as well. It's just a strange choice.
1: It truly is. Another strange choice is the end. Because instead of tying it all together, they sort of untie it entirely. And our final girl. I don't know if many other films end like this where your final girl, quote unquote. Is the mad woman?
0: Well, there's a lot of slashers that end where the final girl has gone crazy because of all of the killing or or that has gone on around them. Uh, tourist trash, uh, t- tourist trap, last house on the left, um, films like that. But in terms of you're the killer and. So I think, yeah, that might this might be the only one, I believe.
1: Oh, sleepaway camp, maybe.
0: Sleepaway camp, yeah. You could definitely yeah. you could definitely include sleepaway camp in that for sure. Actually,
1: Angela doesn't get put into a mental hospital though.
0: If you follow the sequels, she does. She mm-hmm. she mm-hmm. she gets put into a mental institution.
1: But that's where we end up with Patty in a mental ward.
0: And she's just doing her stand-up routine, which confused me. Originally, this sequence was filmed as Patty in the mansion with all of the bodies around her performing her stand-up routine. Kind of like the end of Stage Fright where the dude in the owl mask is just sitting there while everyone is dead around him and he's petting the cat. Kind of like that. Um, Apparently, uh simpson's uh wife at the time didn't like that ending so they reshot it to her delivering the stand-up routine and i guess the same asylum that samantha uh ended up in although there was a weird part of me wondering at the time when i first saw this like is this all supposed to have been going on in her mind like even when she was doing her stand-up routine at the beginning of the film and an audience was laughing was it all just mental patience that she's delivering her thing to, but uh, it's hard to say. But uh, honestly, um, yeah, this this film sits in a weird place for me where there's so much while I'm watching it that I like about it, but I can't deny that on the whole, it's just, it's two films stitched together very much like how it was made.
1: Yeah, two films stitched together, two casts uh, in a way because they filmed some stuff as pickups later two sets of directors, two sets of crews, uh, filmed at two very different seasons like just very very strange production history from what I understand, a massive production and a mess of a script that they were trying to fix up afterward it seems just a bit of a mess unfortunately failing because it's not one that you can hold up in high regard, you get something like Blood Rage that has a little bit of ridiculousness, but it's very fun to watch. Highly recommendable. You get something like Pieces, which has maybe arguably the stupidest ending ever uh, <laughs> to, to, to a horror movie. And unbelievable as well, but highly watchable, super fun, very recommendable. This one, I I, I upon seeing it, and talking about it, I get why I hadn't heard about it when it came out. I get why I hadn't heard about it for the 20 years afterward <laughs> when other people would have been discovering hidden gems. And it's only come into the forefront because I was so taken by the look of the head killer Yes, in that one sequence.
0: I think that's the thing that sticks with me the most, is the mask is so effective, certain sequences are so effective, and you just wish that they were in a more competently made movie. Although... To be fair, to be fair that everyone who worked on it, the fact that it got made at all, the fact that it got out the door, the fact that even some of the actors, when they were, they'd get called up and say, Hey, like come in because we got some more scenes to shoot. They would react. Oh, are we still shooting that? What's going on? Like what what's happening with that movie? It got made. It got released given time every movie finds its audience and you know that as horror fans there's tons of people listening right now or who have yet to discover it that this is going to be one of their weird favorite back pocket slasher movies because horror fans just love this shit and the 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 fact the weirder it is the more poorly made, the more that it's kind of amazing that it got out the door, that is all going to be enough for some people about why uh, you should give this film some time. I personally think that it's an, it's important if you were a, an aficionado of the, of, of the genre, particularly slashers, it is important to watch a lot of different kinds. I would never say that there's no value in it, but I think that Uh, the very least within curtains there's so much to talk about that that in itself makes it worthy to watch it and worthy to discuss it.
1: It's important for Canadian film as well because it was part of a horror boom that was happening here and there's no other Mm -hmm. way to to describe it at the time. The tax shelter films if some people want to say it can can exploitation perhaps even though it's not definitively Canadian it's not steeped in maple syrup by any means, but it is a Canadian film, nevertheless. So I think it's important in that way. And as much as we got confused about which actress was playing what character, and I had to have a cheat sheet to keep them <laughs> freaking straight, they are very different and very interesting female characters. So I think that it's really in higher esteem if only the film would have been stitched together better or produced a little tighter. And given a better ending, then it would have really shone. But, oh, well, here we are. No doll, no glass unicorn, piss poor Argento. Okay. I That, that skating scene saves it entirely.
0: I agree. And I think they know that because, uh, again, the skating scene is the scene that when you look at Compilations. when you look at everybody who's discussing this film, that's the scene that comes up again and again and again. So at the very least, th- there is some brilliant, perfect moments in a very imperfect film. And I think that's how I, uh, I'm going to think about curtains.
1: I'd like to see a remake of this, quite honestly. I mean, I know that, us Canadians botched a remake of Black Christmas, from what I understand. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, this this one would have a this is a good candidate though for a remake. Give us a glass unicorn. Give us our gentoesque Giallo feels at this one particular scene in the bottom third. Uh, give us a better ending. I, I think it would be fantastic. And maybe just splice in the ice skating scene as it exists, because it's pretty perfect.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. What do we got next for them?
1: Coming up next, we are switching gears and years. We're going to watch ju
0: We are. And this, dear listeners, if you're keeping track, is going to be episode 200. We ha- We had other plans for episode 200, but... I don't know. I kind of reneged on them. And then we didn't know what to do. And now it's just, oh, it's going to be just another movie. But it's a great movie and a movie that I've been meaning to uh, bring to the table for a long time. So we're going to have a nice fun discussion about that.
1: Massive movie. And as you know, as we mentioned in the last episode, we tend to avoid the biggies or save the biggies for big numbers. Juan is a great candidate for this because it leads into us doing... The Ring and The Grudge, the remakes of the last two films like this that we've talked about. Unfortunately, there's no remake of Curtains yet. (laughs) So we'll be talking about Juwan and The Grudge and The Ring and The Grudge. I already said The Grudge. You know what I mean.
0: It does get confusing. And on that note, I'm Wes Knight.
1: And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been
0: listening to Dead Air.